Hi, this is Pastor James Strickland, and you are listening to our sermon cast for Homeland Park Baptist Church. Man, what a, what a service this morning. Uh, I think I could just go ahead and say amen and let's go home. I know you would like that, but um, we are go- all joking aside, we are going to be reading in God's Word this morning in Nehemiah chapter 9. And before we do that, Last week we found Nehemiah undertaking a task greater than even rebuilding the fallen walls of Jerusalem. He was rebuilding the people. God was rebuilding the people through his efforts. And the first step, as we learned last week in chapter 8, was having the priest Ezra come out and read God's law to them. And they stayed there for days listening to that and they started working on their hearts. And so today's scripture We see the follow-up to that, that people's honest response to God's Word as it was shared. They are moved to be honest with themselves and others, but most importantly, God. And if you want God, check this out, if you want God to do a rebuilding work in your life, it starts right here with being broken before Him. Because, my friends, if you don't think someone something is broken, you're probably not going to try to fix it. But the truth is, no matter how well we are doing today, there is something broken within us called sin and that desire to sin. But with that said, uh, we are going to let, look, what my words say are immaterial. It is what God's word says that is going to change our lives. So let's just jump right into our scripture this morning. The first thing that we see is that rebuilding requires being honest about your sin. When I'm talking about rebuilding, remember, The walls have been rebuilt. The infrastructure has been rebuilt. Now the people are being rebuilt. They have heard the scriptures. And now that was, I believe it was on October 8th when they gathered together with all of this and heard the scriptures. And now on October 31st, hey, imagine that. October 31st, it says, the people assembled again. And this time they fasted and dressed in burlap and sprinkled dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent separated themselves from all foreigners as they confessed their own sins. They weren't looking at the sins of others. They confessed their own sins and the sins of their ancestors. They remained standing in place for three hours while the book of the law of the Lord their God was being read aloud to them. So not only were they singing and standing, I mean, not only were they standing for a hymn and a song, Three hours they were standing while the book of the law of the Lord, their God, was read aloud to them. Then for three more hours they confessed their sins and worshipped the Lord their God. The Levites, and again, the Levites were like temple assistants. The Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Kadamil, Shadabaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, Kenanai, stood at the stairway of the Levites and cried out to the Lord their God with a loud voice. Then the leaders of the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashbenai, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethiah called out to the people. And this is what they said. They called out and they said, Stand up and praise the Lord your God. Much as if I or another preacher would stand up today. Stand up and praise the Lord your God, for He lives from everlasting to everlasting. And then they prayed, May your glorious name be praised. May it be exalted above all blessing and praise. 
And notice what it says here. You alone are the Lord. You alone. There's a lot in that statement. You alone are the Lord. You made the skies and the heavens and all the stars. You made the earth and the seas and everything in them. You preserved them all. And the angels of heaven worship you. Woo, there's a lot to unpack there in six verses. But we will do this expeditiously, right? First of all, we see that God was moving and it was time for repentance. Folks, there's going to come a time in your life. There will come a time in this church if God so moves for us to, if we want revival to happen, if we want to see what God wants to do with this place, he's already working. I have no doubt in that. But if we want to see what God's best is for us, it's going to take Repentance. Here we find the people of God gathering in Jerusalem 22 days later after the word of God was first proclaimed. The walls were built. Infrastructure was set. And now they were teaching about the Lord. The wall was rebuilt. And now God had to, through the Holy Spirit and God's word, rebuild the heart of his people. My friends, if you have a heart problem with God or others or even yourself, you have a word problem. Because this is what fixes our hearts. The Bible says that our hearts are deceitful and evil above all things. In other words, if you hear people say, well, I'm just going to follow my heart, that heart will send you into the ditch every single time. Well, preacher, the heart wants what the heart wants. That's right. And that's why we are in the shape that we are in sometimes. Because people are following their heart, but not the word. The once wayward, proud people were humbling themselves and being honest in their appreciation and their need for God. I mean, think about this. Their ancestors that had wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and they have long since been gone and they had been exiled for 70 years. So generation after generation kind of made all of those stories and all those uh, times that God had provided for them There were kids that were raised and never heard that. Just like there are kids today that are raised and don't know what a Bible is. They don't know what it means to go to church. Or if they do know what church is, it is not good because they've been taught something else. We've seen generations where the grandfather and the grandmother, they were stout, devout members of a church. And then their children kind of attempted at it. And then before you know it, their children didn't do it. And before you know it, you have an entire generation of a family that is unchurched. It happens. And so what God is doing here by reading his word, he is reminding these generations that had followed into a once great people who love God, reminding them of where they come from and whose they are. And so here we see some outward signs of inward change. Outward signs of inward change. Just like when we are privileged enough to baptize people in the baptistry right back here. The water doesn't save anybody, but it is showing you, it's showing me, and it's showing to the person that's being baptized what God has done in their heart. We see the same thing here. They were, they heard the word, they were repenting, and so they had to do something to show and express everything that was going on. So they started with fasting. Now, fasting, I've, I know um, I've got friends and know of people, and some of you have probably done this when you have the 40 days before Easter, you have Lent, and some people say, well, you know what, I'm giving up chocolate. 
You know, or I'm giving up two cups of coffee instead of three this 40 days. And, you know, and, and, and look, I'm not making light of that, that the purpose of fasting is not to lose weight. The purpose of fasting is not to look good in the mirror so everybody will say, oh, what are you doing? What's your diet plan? Fasting for God. How much does that cost? I'm on Weight Watchers. No, that's not what that is. Fasting is when you, some people fast for 40 days. Some people fast for five minutes. (laughs) Some people fast for a meal. But I'm, I'm kind of making light of this, but what I want you to see is this is a way that they could say, look, every time I think about my stomach, every time my body tells me to feed it, I'm going to defer that carnal desire to finding out God's will for my life. That is what fasting is. It may be going without food. It may be going without something. That, that whatever you are saying, I don't want to take a part of for the sole purpose of that taking my focus off of God, when it wants to come and it wants to take my focus, I'm going to put my focus on God. That is the purpose of fasting. And so these people are saying, look, it's more important right now, God's Word is more important to nourish my soul than whatever I can eat to put in my body. That was an outward sign of an inward change. Then we see burlap bags. Some translations say sackcloth, much like old... Burlap tater sack that some of y'all might remember, those that were raised on a farm or, or used to buy those in the store. Why in the world would somebody dress in a burlap, rough, itchy burlap sack and do away with all of their comfortable clothes? Well, here's the thing. Just like fasting was an attempt to get your focus off of what you could eat, by wearing the burlap sacks is a way of them saying, look, I am, I am doing away with the comfort of these nice clothes. I'm doing away with anything that is important to me so that even though I've got the scratchy old nasty burlap sack on, I, my focus is not what I'm wearing. My focus is on God. And then the third thing we see is they put... Dust on their head. Some translations say ashes on their head. This for Jews was a way that they would show that they were in mourning. And these people were in mourning not because they had lost a loved one, but because they had lost their love for God. And then as the scripture was read, they were convicted and now they did something about it. Except nowadays when we are convicted, when we hear God's word, we start thinking about what we're going to eat after we get out of here. We think about all these other things because the devil does not want us to read God's Word. He does not want us to see with this spiritual MRI that we need to fix something. And the thing here is that many believers don't want to give up any comfort or any sense of what is normal. I used to say it before. I will never say it again. I've learned a lot about this. And I was talking to somebody the other day that said this. said, oh, I just want things to get back to normal. There is no normal. Nothing stays the same. 
These were acts of humility, not outward displays of fake spirituality. Sure, there were people that said, oh, you know, they look so spiritual while they're doing that. I'm going to do the same thing. Well, my friend's wearing a burlap sack. Oh, that looks kind of stazzy. I think I'm going to go get one. I'm going to bedazzle my burlap sack, and I'm going to do all these different things, and I'm going to really get into this, but yet God is not working on their hearts. There was probably some of that. But that was not what God, God can judge that. What these people were doing is saying, look, I'm getting rid of every kind of comfort I have and I am focusing on what God wants me. Some, yes, did have the wrong motives. Some did that because they wanted to seem or look spiritual. But this did not take away from the heartfelt action of those whom God was dealing with. And so when it comes to worship and we look like we have it all together at church, we look like we have it all together out in public, and there are some people that do and there are some people that don't, and there are some people that are making it, and there are some people that are faking it. Let me show you this verse. God is the judge of our motives. It says in Proverbs 2, 1, verses 2 and 3. Proverbs 21, verses 2 and 3. People may be right in their own eyes, but the Lord examines their heart. You watch any news channel, you watch any social feed, you will see people that think that everything they do and everything they think is right in their own eyes. But God examines the heart. And it says in verse 3, The Lord is more pleased when we do what is right and just than when we offer Him sacrifices. Matter of fact, God told them in scriptures, look, if you have a problem with your brother or sister, then when brother or sister, by meaning either literally or in a relationship or friendship, if you have a problem with somebody, don't come to the altar and offer a sacrifice. You go get right with that first. And so really, what does that mean to you and I today? If we've got a problem with someone, it is better for us to leave right now, go fix that before we come and offer our sacrifice of praise and worship in this sanctuary. If we did that, there would be a lot of churches that would be empty this morning. Because people are not taking this seriously. And God was working in their hearts, because God knows our hearts, and He knows if we are truly sorry for our sin against Him. And so in this passage, this is not a, a slick list that I came up with. You can pull it out of the Scripture, right, for your very very, very own. Here's a model for rebuilding your relationship with God. If you feel like you need to add some steps back, if you want to make sure that that connection is rock solid, if you just want to kind of take some notes and work on this and pray through this later, it's right here in Scripture. Number one, if you want to rebuild or strengthen your relationship with God, number one, listen to the Word of God with anticipation of responding to it. I've told our leadership, and I've told you all before, I have been guilty at times of just coming in on Sunday mornings and expecting it to be the same old, same old. And every time I do that, I am the one that is uh, missing out on that. We need to come, sit in these pews. We, I need to stand on this pulpit. We need to sing. We need to be in the Bible study classes. We need to be in the nursery and children's expecting God to do something. Have we lost our sense of expecting that God is going to do something we can't explain. So listen to the Word of God with anticipation to responding to it. Number two, admitting that you have fallen short of God's Word. Yeah, that's the hardest part. Nobody wants to admit that they're wrong. Everybody's got a condition. Everybody has got something that somebody has given a term for. No. Sometimes when we fall short, it's because we have sinned, and we have to own that. 
Then after that, we repent, turn away from those things that are keeping you from fellowship with God. The reason there's a lot of people that are not living for God is because the pull of whatever they were holding on to, they won't let go of. And then finally, once you've done step one, step two, step three, the fourth thing is resume your worship of him. I'm going to go ahead and tell you something. If you make the worship of God primary, everything else is going to fall into place. We've got to work on that connection. The older we get, the more doctors we get. A doctor for this, a doctor for that, a specialist for this, another specialist for that. I saw it in my parents' lives, and I see it in some of you even here today. Our bodies are not meant to last, are they? Gravity takes its toll. Age takes its toll. In recent days, it seems so many friends of mine and yours are being diagnosed with all of these awful diseases and abnormalities. And when people ask for prayer, no one asks, would you please pray that the doctor would not tell me what's wrong with me? Would you just please tell, would you pray and ask God not to reveal anything there because I don't want to know what's going on. I know if I ignore it, it will just go away. It doesn't work like that, does it? If there is something inside of your body attacking your body, it will not stop until it is treated or it overtakes you. Sin is the same way, my friends. Sin is attacking your spiritual life, and it will not stop until you take it seriously. That is what the people in Nehemiah are learning. Sin is a disease. God's Word. This is the MRI for our soul, folks. And then obedience is the treatment. If God says it, that settles it, and let's do it. Because sin hinders our relationship with God. Folks, honest confession should precede worship. Let me just put it plainly. If you're not honest with yourself, you're not going to be honest with God, and your worship is a waste of time. Because God knows you're faking it. (laughs) And so we see here in this passage as they are wearing burlap sacks and they're putting ashes on their head and they're fasting, there's a difference between humiliation versus humility. Humiliation versus humility. Humiliation, if it, if the emphasis is the praise of people. In other words, if everything is about me and something like that happens, we are humiliated. But yet, if we, our emphasis is on pleasing God, it's not humiliation, but it's humility. Just like Jesus Christ himself, who was in his very own was God, but yet humbled himself obediently even to death unto a cross. He is the epitome of humility. If all we're worried about is what people think of us, we're going to call it humiliation. And it's a negative thing. But if we're worried about God getting glory, we call it humility. And God gets the glory. Here's the thing about humbleness. Check this out. I'm going to give you a secret. The minute you know you're humble, you've lost it. The minute you know you're humble, you've lost it. The people of God allowed their brokenness of heart to lead them to humbly come before God and hear his word. So this is a first step of revival is having a broken heart. The second thing we see is knowing your history prevents you from repeating it. Now, I'm just going to kind of read through this. And we're going to have a couple of rest areas as we go through these next 
a few verses, the 7 through 37. So get your copy of God's Word or, or your notes or whatever, or just listen. Because here is the next section of, section of Scripture that we find one of the most beautiful prayers of confession. We often see these prayers, these times of remembering the history. You'll, you'll read, if you read through the Bible, especially the Old Testament, you will find sections like this that kind of go and recount. Like I've got, you know, I've got some friends, whether it be in ministry or in, in the first responding service. We always like to get together. Oh man, you remember that house back there? You remember that person over there? You remember when we, we just relive it because it's, it's a time where we remember that we were together. It's a time where we remember where there was one purpose. It's a time where we remember something happening. And that is what's happening here. They're saying, man, remember what God did this. When churches talk about their history, remember when God did this. Just like I've been, and I'll tell more about this later, but just like remembering when a 25-year-old secretary at Gallant Belk had a passion for people in Tintown where our fellowship hall sits and started this church. Remember those days? Most of you have heard something about it. Some of you have heard nothing about it, about where we come from. Many of you would be shocked to know that we are a church plant of First Baptist Anderson. It's a crazy story. I can't wait to share it with you sometime as we uh, talk about next steps. But there were some young people in this group. This is why they had to do this. There were some young people, some young people in this group who had not been taught the word of God. And their fathers had not told them how God chose them and brought them out of the land of Egypt. Maybe some of the fathers didn't even know their own history. Just like today, families are spiritually devoid of any spiritual truth because they weren't raised in it, they haven't pursued it, and they're not pursuing it now. And so people that are not biblically literate are raising children who are not biblically literate, and all the while the moral compass of our world just shifts further and further away from center. Maybe some of the fathers didn't even know their own history. Thus, the Levites that we read about were educating them. And similarly, we need a new generation of Christian teachers to enter the classroom to convey such truths to the children. Don't get me wrong. You can read Deuteronomy and find out. Do you know whose responsibility it is to teach your children about the Lord? It's not Pastor James. It's not all of our gifted parents and adults that are working in our children's ministry here. It's you. God will hold you accountable. But yet, just like the Levites, God can use myself and others. And we can be privileged enough to help come alongside you like a coach and say, this is how we do this. All right. Verse 7. You are the Lord God who chose Abraham and brought him from Ur of the Chaldeans and renamed him Abraham. When he had proved himself faithful, you made a covenant with him to give him and his descendants the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Girgashites, and you have done what you have promised, for you are always faithful to your word. So here when you're reading the Bible, you're thinking, I can't say those names. I mean, that's I don't really understand that. Let me tell you what that means. God keeps his promises. They have just told these people, remember that God keeps his promises. Remember, the land that you are sitting on right now, God had promised that you would be in it. 
Then in verse 9, you saw the misery of our ancestors in Egypt and you heard their cries from beside the Red Sea. You displayed miraculous signs and wonders against Pharaoh, his officials, and all the people. For you knew how arrogantly they were treating our ancestors. You have a glorious reputation that has never been forgotten. You are divided. You, you divided the sea for your people so they could walk through on dry land. And then you hurled their enemies into the depths of the sea. They sank like stones beneath the mighty waters. You led our ancestors by a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night so they could find their way. You came down at Mount Sinai and spoke to them from heaven. So we've gone from the splitting of the Red Sea to now we're at the Ten Commandments. You gave them regulations and instructions. They had no way to live. They didn't know how to live. They didn't know any rules. They had always had people take care of them when they were enslaved, but now they were free and they didn't know what to do. So God gave them the Ten Commandments. This is how you live. It says in verse 14, you instructed them concerning your holy Sabbath, and you commanded them through Moses, your servant, to obey all your commands, decrees, and instructions. You gave them bread from heaven when they were hungry and water from the rock when they were thirsty. You commanded them to go and take possession of the land you had sworn to give them. So now when you read this, folks, you see that you're getting a history lesson. This is the highlight reel. This is how we got here. I have a, a feature on the, how we watch TV to where if you come into a football game and it's about halfway over, you can hit uh, key plays. And so you hit key plays. You don't have to watch the commercials. You don't have to watch the boring parts. They give you all the key plays and finally you're up to the live action. Right here, we have the live action. We have gotten key plays this happened, this happened, this happened. And then it says in verse 16, But your ancestors were proud and stubborn, and they paid no attention to your commands. They refused to obey and did not remember the miracles you had done for them. Instead, they became stubborn and appointed a leader to take them back to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God of forgiveness and merciful, slow to become angry, and rich in unfailing love. You do not abandon them. Even when they made an idol shaped like a calf and said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt. They continue or committed terrible blasphemies. In other words, you say, look, you think you're messed up. You ought to have seen what those before you and your family did. They were really messed up. And then again, verse 19, but in your great mercy, you did not abandon them to die in the wilderness. See, they're praying to God. The pillar of cloud still led them forward by day. And the pillar of fire showed them the way through the night. You sent your good spirit to instruct them. And you did not stop giving them manna from heaven or water for their thirst. For 40 years you sustained them in the wilderness. And they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out. And their feet did not swell. Can you imagine that? 40 years. And they never had to patch their tents. Forty years, they never had to retread their sandals. Forty years, they never had to go to the grocery store. For forty years, they survived without a Walmart. They just kept, if you go look at the map of them in the wilderness, they go in a circle for forty years. Do you think at some point somebody would say, hey, I remember this right here is where we buried somebody. I remember right over here when I saw a lion. I remember every, but no, circle. But God led them. Then it says in verse 22, 
Then you helped our ancestors conquer kingdoms and nations, and you placed your people in every corner of the land. They took over the land of King Ashanon Heshbon, and then land of King Og of Bashan. You made their descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and brought them into the land you had promised to their ancestors. They went in and took possession of the land. You subdued whole nations before them. Even the Canaanites who inhabited the land were powerless. So where are we talking about now? We're talking about when Joshua led them into the promised land. See, this is the greatest highlights. This is the mixtape. This is how we got here. Verse 27, so you handed them over to the enemies who made them suffer. But in their time of trouble, they cried to you and you heard them from heaven. In your great mercy, you sent them liberators who rescued them from their enemies. But as soon as they were at peace, your people again committed evil in your sight. So here we go. Here's the progression. God saves them. They get into a good place and then they go crazy. And they rebel. It says in verse 28, but soon they were at peace. As soon as they were at peace, your people committed evil in your sight. And once more, you let their enemies conquer them. Yet whenever your people turned and cried to you again for help, you listened once more from heaven in your wonderful mercy and rescued you them many times. My friends, as you read this, I hope you understand. If you are that person that said, I've gone to God a million times over this, and I'm sure he's tired of hearing it. This shows that he is not tired of hearing it. If you've gone back to God humbly a million times, make it a million and one. Because right now, he is full of mercy. Verse 29, you warned them to return to your law, but they became proud and obstinate. Some translations say they become stiff-necked. And they disobeyed your commands. They did not follow your regulations, but which people will find Life, if only they obey. They stubbornly turn their backs on you and refuse to listen. No, la, 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 I'm not hearing it. La, 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 la. I don't care what God's word says. If I don't read it, if I don't believe it, if I act like it's not there, then God never said it, right? Wrong. So once again, you allowed the peoples of the land to conquer them. But in your great mercy, you did not destroy them and completely abandon them forever. What a gracious and merciful God you are. Have you ever stopped to think, now here comes something a preacher would say, but have you ever thought the reason our world is in the condition it's in is because people have lost God's word in their lives? We don't know how to be good human beings. We don't have a moral center. We don't have a desire to see God's Word as the authoritative source in our lives. Maybe that's why everything's going crazy. It's not because of the Democrats. It's not because of the Republicans. It's not because of Biden. It's not because of Trump. It's not because of Pelosi. It's not because of Putin. It's not because of Ukraine. It's not because of the sheets. It's not because of the oil. It's because people have stopped looking as God's Word as the center of everything that we are. And just as the people of Israel were scattered and oppressed, God is allowing our world to suffer so that we will see our need for Him. See God for who He is. That's what we're saying here. Look, verse 31. But in your great mercy you did not destroy them completely or abandon them forever. What a gracious and merciful God you are. As bad as it gets, folks, God is not going to destroy us until it's the end of time. And He will give you and I, every opportunity to repent and return to Him 
until that time comes. Folks, we need to see God for who He is. How can our hearts be humbled when we see the true goodness of God bestowed on us that even when we're not good to Him, He's good to us? Over and over again, we see here in this passage, God rescued His people, but they quickly forgot Him and they returned to their sin. So my friends, if you have gotten on fire for the Lord and you took on hell with a water pistol, and then before you know it, a month later, a week later, a day later, a year later, you find yourself in a much different situation, far from God, that does not mean that you get further. It means that you run back and hold on, and you remember how far you have fallen from. You remember that you have forsaken your first love, and you go back to Him, and He will take you just as he did the people of Israel, as we're reminded of, as we read this long, lengthy prayer in Nehemiah. See, isn't this great? I'm not even preaching. I'm just reading God's Word. Verse 32, And now our God, the great and mighty and awesome God, who keeps His covenant of unfailing love, do not let your hardships that we have suffered seem insignificant to you. Great trouble has come upon us and upon our kings and leaders and priests and prophets and ancestors. All of your people from the days when the kings of Assyria first triumphed over us until now. Every time you punished us, you were being just. In other words, they're saying, we know we messed up, God. And everything you did for us is right. When my parents punished me, I know that I deserved every bit of it. I didn't like it, but I know now I deserved every bit of it. Verse 34, our kings, leaders, priests, and ancestors did not obey your law and listen to the warnings and your commands and laws. Even while they had their own kingdom, they did not serve you. Though you showered your goodness on them, you gave them a large fertile land, but they refused to turn from their wickedness. So now today, we are slaves in the land of a plenty that you have gave our ancestors for their enjoyment. We are slaves here in this good land. The lush produce of this land piles up in the hands of the kings whom you have sent over us because of our sins. They have power over us and our livestock. We serve them at their pleasure, and we are in great misery. What does this say? This says we need God for who he is. And who we are. The people's rebellion brought the punishment from their enemies. They needed God to save them. And it is very likely God is putting our world into this situation. God is putting your life into the situation where he is going to be the only one to rescue you. And you have to realize that. You and I need God to save us today from our enemies and even from ourselves. I love in verse 33, it's true confession, where it says, Every time you punished us, we were being just. You were being just. We have sinned greatly, and you gave us only what we deserve. There's two things in true confession that we see in this scripture. God is right, and we are wrong. But God, you don't understand. God is right. We are wrong. But God, you know what that person did to me? He is right. We are wrong. But God, you know what it's like to live in this world today? He is right, and we are wrong. But God, you don't understand how that person hurt me. God is right, and we are wrong when it comes to Scripture. Confession is agreeing on both of those things. If you do not agree that God is right, 
you will not confess. And if you do not believe that you are wrong, you will not confess. Because confession is crucial to our relationship with God. I hate it when I think that I'm not right with someone, whether it be a friend or family member, and knowing that that relationship is not where it ought to be. When you and I can get to the point where we are done arguing with God over whether we are right or wrong and confess our sin and run to Him, our relationship with Him will flourish. That's how we rebuild our relationship. Last but not least, verse 38. The people responded. After this long prayer, the people responded. Here is the so what. Here is the next step. This is what do we do with what we just heard. The people responded in verse 38. In view of all this, we are making a solemn promise and putting it in writing. On this sealed document are the names of our leaders and Levites and priests. So after hearing God's word, remembering their history and God's faithfulness, they made a covenant or a promise committing themselves to God that day. Now, of course, later on, they would backtrack on that. But I've backtracked before on my commitments to God. You've backtracked on your commitments to God. We've got to return to Him. Be honest with God and yourself. Your reward will be great. Folks, God never abandons us, even when we abandon Him. Just as God was rebuilding his people through Nehemiah, he wants to rebuild you if you will just simply come to him. Become more concerned with confessing your sins and pointing out the sins of others. If you want God to do a rebuilding work in your life, if you want God to do a rebuilding work in Homeland Park Baptist Church, it starts right here with being broken before him. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that we can sit here today and hear just your word flowing over our ears and our minds and our bodies as we recap, Lord, what you've done with the people of Israel and how you've been faithful to them. You're faithful to us, Lord. And if there is someone here today that their relationship needs to be repaired, that today may be the day. Maybe they didn't come to church today wanting to do any kind of spiritual inventory or especially no confession but lord the truth of the matter is if they don't act now there's nothing to say that when they get up out of that pew and walk out of here that you'll visit them and give them this opportunity again i I don't understand the holy spirit and his timing but you do because it's you (laughs) but god if there's someone here today that wants to know you as their savior and lord and say look i've i've never had a relationship with god and i want it to be today Maybe today will be the day that they will do that.